Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right. Hey, guys. It's Chris here again. And uh, I'm deciding to do a podcast from uh, this book again, The Biblical Cosmos, because I read a chapter in it that I feel is very relevant, (laughs) has very relevant information in it. I feel like it should be shared because I don't see this kind of information being uh, talked about all that often. And it's basically about the concept that uh, the tabernacle in the Bible that Moses was given on Mount Sinai was a reflection of the cosmos. Okay, I don't know how many of you have heard of that before, but scholars talk about it, and they have talked about it for a while. But basically, it's the idea that um, the, the pattern or the design for the tabernacle that Moses was given actually represented and symbolized uh, creation and the cosmos, because creation or the cosmos is God's temple, you know, uh, in the macrocosm. And the the tabernacle was supposed to represent his temple in the microcosm. So it was supposed to represent the cosmos, you know, writ small, on on the micro level. And there's actually uh, some passages in the Bible that indicate this as well, like uh, Hebrews. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, here we go, Hebrews 8.5, where it's talking about the tabernacle. It says, quote, They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, quote, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, other verses uh, actually say that it was a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary or the heavenly temple or of what is in heaven. Okay, so it's clearly it's clearly indicating that parts of the tabernacle symbolism were meant to represent. God's sanctuary in heaven, like literally what it looks like, the structure of it. You know, so if that's the case, it would follow that, you know, the other parts were meant to represent the other parts of creation, right? The other parts of the cosmos, and they do. Scholars have, like I said, scholars have talked about it. They've been talking about it. And so I'm going to read this chapter that talks about it as well. So let me see here. Called uh, God's in the House, the Temple and the Biblical Cosmos. It starts, it says, The Bible ends with a vision of, quote, a new heaven and a new earth. However, what the prophet John actually sees in the vision is not what he might ex- we might expect. 
not oceans and mountains, not nor fields and rivers, but a city. Down from heaven descends the new Jerusalem, and its presence marks the dwelling of God with humanity, for this city is, in fact, a temple city. It is not merely a city that contains a temple like Jerusalem, but the city itself is a temple. The temple-city connection comes out in various ways, but the following will be enough to make the point. A, the city is a vast cube, the same dimensions of the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. B, the city is composed of precious stones and gold, elements used in the construction of the temple and items associated with it. C, the city has no temple in it to contain God's presence, for God's glory and presence fill it as they fill the Holy of Holies. And D, God's throne is in it, and from this throne flows life-giving water, feeding the lush tree of life. All these are temple images, images as we shall see. The question is this. Why would a vision of a temple count as a vision of a new heaven and a new earth? Has the Bible not got its wires crossed? This part of the tour will explore that question. The basic pattern of the tabernacle shown by God to Moses on Mount Sinai was simple enough. It was composed of three sections, A, an outer courtyard containing a large altar for sacrifices and a laver containing water, B, a chamber called the holy place containing a seven-branched lampstand, a table for bread, and an altar for burning incense, and C, a central chamber, the holy of holies, containing the Ark of the Covenant. The outer court was open to all Israelites, the holy place to all priests, and the holy of holies to the high priest, though only on one day per year. This same basic pattern was retained later in the temple built in Jerusalem by Solomon. The ancient world was awash with temples dedicated to a wide array of deities. <clears throat> Every ancient culture had its gods and its temples. Israel did not invent the idea of a temple, they inherited it. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem had overt non-Israelite input. It was built with imported Phoenician materials and furnished by Hiram, a skilled metal, metal worker from Tyre. A quick comparison of the three-part structure of Israel's temple and its furnishings will reveal that there were many similarities between the biblical temple and temples across the ancient Near East. What was really distinctive about Israel's temple was that, uniquely in the ancient world, it had no statue of the deity in it, for Jehovah had expressly forbidden such a thing. Nevertheless, Israel's temple did share much in common with other temples, and it is helpful to briefly note a few things about temples in the ancient Near East in our attempt to better grasp the Bible's temple. There is a strong association between sacred hills and temples in the Old World. Egypt is famously flat, but most of the great Egyptian temples claim that within their courts was the primeval mound upon which the Creator had made the world. The Temple Mountain Association is so strong that Ramses III, addressing the god Ta-Tatanen, can say that the temple of Medinet-Habu has been built, quote, on the mountain, even though it is located on a completely flat plain. In the equally flat world of Mesopotamia, the great ziggurats functioned as symbolic mountains, staircases to heaven. If we move to locations closer to mountains, we find gods such as Baal dwelling in a temple on Mount Zaphon and El inhabiting a temple on his own mountain. The association is fairly simple. Mountains bridge the chasm between the heavens and the earth, and temples symbolically serve the same function. Temples were cosmic mountains. 
edible gardens were found throughout Mesopotamia and Egypt. Trees could represent gods or a mystical and fertile life source, like the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. Trees are also strongly associated with water in temples and are often shown as sources of water in iconography. Many temples also have other sources of water linked with them. There are ritual basins of water, sacred pools and lakes, and even springs of water. Water in this context, like the trees, was seen as a symbol of the life that gushed from the gods to sustain the world. Temples were quite literally zones of vitality. The flourishing of the land may depend on what went on in the temple. This section of a wall relief from 7th century BC Assyria shows all three aspects of temples very clearly. The temple itself is at the top of a mountain. Water flows from an aqueduct around the temple grounds, and lush trees can be seen planted all about. It almost goes without saying, because it is so blindingly obvious, that first and foremost a temple was the house of a god. Gods lived in temples and ruled from temples. Thus, temples were always the temple of Marduk or El or Artemis or Ishtar or Baal or whoever. Within a temple was found a cult statue of the deity to whom the temple was dedicated, an idol. The idol was not simplistically identified with the deity as if the deity was the idol and nothing more, for the god or goddess was understood to reside in heaven or in the underworld or wherever. The idol was thought of as just a statue until it was, quote, ritually activated, and as we might say, online. Once activated, the spirit of the god or goddess was thought to inhabit the statue such that people could worship him or her by means of worshiping the idol. Functionally speaking, the idol was the god or goddess. Nevertheless, the god or goddess could not be reduced to the statue. After all, most of these deities had numerous cult statues in various locations, so the god must have been thought of as transcending any single idol. The various biblical authors had a very low view of such idols because Jehovah, the living God, could not be represented by something so static and lifeless as a statue. A metal or stone image, a salem, of a God cannot see or hear or act and so cannot represent the living Jehovah. The only authorized image of God in Scripture is humanity, thinking, hearing, seeing, speaking, acting humanity, filled with the Spirit of God. In Genesis 1, human beings are created to be the equivalent in creation of the cult statue in a temple. That is an astonishing claim. Ancient Near Eastern temples were symbolic representations of heaven and sometimes of the whole cosmos. The Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, says of the building of Marduk's temple, quote, He shall make on earth the counterpart of what he brought to pass in heaven. That is to say that the temple of Marduk was intended to be an earthly model of heaven. In Egypt, also temples were made, quote, like the heavens or the likeness of the heavens. As images of heaven, temples served as gateways to heaven. In Egypt, when the gates of the sanctuary were opened each day, the words, quote, the gates of heaven are open were uttered. The person entering the sanctuary itself says, quote, I enter into heaven to behold, name of God. The temple was a place where the line between heaven and earth got very blur blurry and fuzzy. We see the same thing if we travel east of Mesopotamia. The picture below of the sun god is a case in point. On the left, we see the Babylonian king, the middle figure, led by a priest towards the symbol of the sun god on a table in the temple. However, the sun god himself is seen as present on his throne, far right. <coughs>
At the bottom of the image, one can see the heavenly ocean, what Genesis would call, quote, the waters above, and Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So are we in a temple on Earth, or are we in heaven with the sun god? Both, because the temples serve as a gateway into heaven itself. Perhaps we can imagine this as in some ways like a 3D video conference call. If we were able to have such a call with someone on the other side of the world, there is a sense in which we are clearly in a different place from that person. We are thousands of miles apart. Yet there is another sense in which we are in the very presence of that person. We see and hear them in real time. Are we in the same place or not? No, but yes. In virtual reality, we are. The video image of the person we speak with is not the person, and yet it mediates the person's presence to us. That gives us at least some inkling as to how ancient thought the temples functioned. They were considered, quote, thin places in which the distance dividing heaven and earth was collapsed, allowing communion between the spheres. The meaning of the temple in ancient Israel. The Jerusalem temple is, as we have already seen, located on Mount Zion, also referred to as, quote, the holy mountain and the mountain of Jehovah. And although at less than 750 meters, Zion is not a big hill, even the hills around it are higher. To the authors of the Bible, it is the biggest of hills because it is the site of the temple. Clearly, this height was not understood in a crudely literal way. Anyone could see that Zion was smaller than the Mount of Olives or Mount Scopus. Rather, as the gateway between heaven and earth, it was the mountain par excellence, the mountain that caused other mountains to look on with jealousy the mountain that in the last days would rise up above other mountains, thereby manifesting its true identity. As the gateway between heaven and earth, when pilgrims, quote, ascend the hill of Jehovah, they are not merely ascending a hill, they are ascending heavenwards. Ezekiel thought that the garden paradise of Eden was located on a holy mountain. This reflects the close association of temples with both mountains and gardens. Eden itself is presented in Genesis as a garden temple, a lush paradise containing a life-giving tree in which God dwelt in fellowship with human beings. While there is no indisputable mention in the Bible of an actual garden around the temple in Jerusalem, the temple is decorated with a lot of garden imagery. It is symbolically, at least, a garden paradise in which God and Israel can fellowship. Okay, just, or where were we? Okay, so, although the temple had sacred basins of water for use in rituals, Zion had no natural water source, though there was a spring at its foot called the Gihon. However, as a temple, it was spoken of as if it did, quote, there is a river whose, stream make glad, whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy habitation of the Most High, Psalm 46.4. And prophets could envisage a future restoration of the temple in which a miraculous life-giving stream would flow out from the temple itself into the land, causing even the Dead Sea, lifeless because of all the salt in it, to burst with fish. This temple river mediated the life of God from heaven via the temple to creation. It speaks of the idea of the temple as a sphere of life. The Jerusalem temple was regularly referred to as a, quote, house, a bayit, for Jehovah. This is the ordinary word for a house, a place in which someone lives. 
But, of course, the resident of this house was no ordinary resident. It was the, quote, king of glory. So the house must be understood as a royal palace. The words Bayit, quote, house, and Hekel, quote, temple, are both used of royal palaces. It was the earthly location of God's heavenly throne. This throne was located in the innermost sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies. There lay the Ark of the Covenant with two vast golden cherubim looming over it. It is likely that these cherubim were thought of as supporting the divine throne. The biblical language of Jehovah sitting, quote, enthroned above the cherubim refers to this idea. However, the throne itself, like the one who sat upon it, was not visually represented in the temple. Although, alternatively, the wings of the cherubim which touched each other may have formed the seed. The Ark of the Covenant, on the other hand, was most likely understood to be Jehovah's footstool. A royal cherubic throne and footstool can be seen in the picture on page 131. Just as elsewhere in the ancient world, Israel's temple was understood to be a location where the chasm between heaven and earth narrowed, enabling real communion between the deity and the people. This blurring of the boundaries is such that in some biblical texts it is impossible to know for sure whether the text is referring to God in the heavenly temple or the earthly temple. Many of the references to God sitting enthroned above the cherubim, for instance, could refer to the cherubim in the Jerusalem temple or those in heaven or both. Or consider Isaiah's famous vision. In the year the king Hosea died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, quote, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Was Isaiah caught up to the heavenly temple in a vision, or was this a vision of God in the earthly temple? It is impossible to tell. The lines between the two are very blurry at times because the earthly temple functioned as a gateway to heaven. Although the distinction between heaven and, and the temple was fuzzy, in Israel's sacramental worldview it was not completely erased. Biblical authors did still make a distinction. The temple, after all, was thought of as a copy of the reality based on the revelation of God to Moses on Sinai. This distinction comes out, for instance, in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in which he voices his amazement at the gracious mystery of God's choosing to dwell in the temple. If even the actual heavens cannot contain the transcendent God, how can the little temple he has built hope to do so? They cannot, and yet he presences himself in both. The temple as microcosm of the cosmos, quote, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever, Psalm 78, 69. In this psalm, God is pictured as the one who built his own house. In the ancient Near East, gods were often spoke of as the founders and builders of their temples. But what is interesting is that this house is compared to creation. This is no accident, but it's fundamental to the symbolism of the temple, for the temple is a model of the universe. As Josephus said regarding the items of the tabernacle, quote, every one of these objects is intended to recall and represent the nature of the universe, Antiquities 3, 180. Different scholars have worked out the details of the comparison differently, but the proposal I find most convincing is the following. A, the outer court corresponds to the terrestrial sphere of earth and sea. B, the holy place represents the sky. And C, the holy of holies stands for God's heaven itself. 
In the courtyard of the temple, we find several clues concerning its meaning. First, there is a large bronze basin containing water, appropriately called, quote, the sea. This sea, representing the cosmic ocean, was cylindrical, perhaps reflecting the notion of a circular sea we have found elsewhere. This sea is not the unconstrained chaos prior to the ordering activity of creation. Rather, it is the bounded sea. It is water as a good part of creation when kept in its place. Second, there is an altar that in the earliest vision, versions of the temple was to be composed of earth or uncut stone. <clears throat> this suggests some kind of earth symbolism. Third, the rim of the large water basin was decorated with two rows of, go rows of gourds, perhaps suggesting the plant life found on earth. Furthermore, it was standing upon 12 oxen, possibly gesturing towards the animal life on the earth and its fertility. These oxen were in groups of three, facing north, south, east, and west, the four points of the compass, the four corners of the earth. The outer court was a place that any ritually clean Israelites could go to. It was holy, but it was the least holy part of the temple. This fits with the idea that it represents the terrestrial plane. The most obvious astral symbol in the holy place is the seven-branched lampstand. As we have seen, aside from the fixed stars, the ancients could see seven bright lights in the sky with the naked eye. <clears throat> the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. It is likely that the seven lights on the candlestick represented those astral lights, which is a link explicitly made by Josephus and Philo. As we saw in chapter 5, Genesis 1 refers to the sun and moon as, quote, lights, using a word only ever used elsewhere of the lights in the temple. This association of the astral lights and the temple lights was no accident. We should also note that the curtain separating the holy place from the outer court was blue, purple, and scarlet, and was held up by blue loops, all sky colors. However, the symbolism of the holy place is a little ambiguous for it seems to contain not only sky symbolism, but also garden symbolism. The lampstand may be seen as a stylized tree of life, and we can find floral decorations on the curtains and on the walls, and of course, there is bread on the table, and bread is made from grain. Doesn't this mixing of symbols mess up the neat picture I am presenting? No. You will recall that temples were associated with mountains that reached up to the heavens and with a garden paradise. Remember, too, that Ezekiel thought of Eden's garden as located on God's mountain. So a paradisical tree of life in the sky is not as odd as it may seem at first blush. The garden paradise goes all the way up. The link between the holiest place and heaven is beyond dispute. The curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies was decorated with cherubim, symbolic of those heavenly creatures that guarded the divine throne. Its colors of blue, purple, and scarlet were those of the sky. Indeed, it may have represented the sky dome. Within the chamber itself was God's cherubic throne and his royal footstool, the Ark of the Covenant. This was the dwelling place of God, the divine throne room. Appropriately, humans cannot see into this heavenly chamber and are not permitted to enter it. The one exception is the high priest one day a year, and even then, only when surrounded by a thick cloud of incense obscuring his sight. So the temple is the cosmos writ small. When the priests and the high priests move around the temple performing their sacred duties, they are symbolically moving around the biblical cosmos. This may help explain why the temple was so central to ancient Israel and why its desecration and its destruction by pagan nations were understood as such catastrophic events. The destruction of the temple, first at the hands of Babylon and later at those of Rome, was in a very real sense the end of the world. The final vision in the book of Revelation now makes a little more sense. 
Not only was the temple, the biblical cosmos, writ small, the biblical cosmos was the temple writ large. In other words, in the world of the Bible, the cosmos is God's house. As Philo puts it, quote, the whole universe must be regarded as the highest and, in truth, the holy temple of God. Such As such, the biblical cosmos is a sacred place indeed. Okay. So, yeah, I really recommend this book, The Biblical Cosmos. Uh, it's got a lot of scholarly information in it, as you can see, with references and citations. But, uh, you know, it's, it's written for a non-scholarly audience, you know, to be accessible. It's a lot like, like a My Michael Heiser book in that regard. Um, you know, it's got the academic in mind, but it's written for the non-academic. That's why I really like it. So I would highly recommend this book. Um, so I would also recommend um, looking into this guy named, or his, his username on YouTube is Harry Katz. And I'll put the link to his YouTube channel in uh, the information description of this show, of this episode. But he's done a whole six-part series on uh, basically how the tabernacle reflects the cosmos and reflects the uh, biblical model of the cosmos in the Bible. It's called uh, Tabernacle Earth, Flat Earth Model in the King James Bible, parts one through six. I would highly recommend watching that if you want further you know, analysis of this. And I actually have a picture of his model here, and it, his model is a little bit different, his analysis, because if you look up uh, depictions of this tabernacle, you will find that you know, first you have the outer court, then you have a gate, and the whole thing's enclosed with a wall. And there's one entrance, one gate entrance, and then you have the brazen altar, and next you have the laver, the bronze laver with the water in it, and next on, on the very top you have the tabernacle itself. So, so his interpretation of that is that the the bronze, the brazen altar, which is first since it's below the laver, which is in the middle, it doesn't actually represent the earth, but it represents the underworld. And that would make sense, because it's an altar, you know, it deals with fire. That would make a lot of sense. And uh, he, there, was, there was a brazen gate, grate, on top of the altar, and there was fire below it, and there was like a chamber below that brazen grate. So he thinks that represents the great gulf of separation, and he thinks that it basically represents both Sheol and Abaddon, with Abaddon below Sheol. So he thinks that it represents a dual subterranean chamber of the dead. And so it's quite obvious now what the uh, labor represents, guys, the circular you know, labor with water in it. I mean, where else have we seen this in the Bible? It says that God sits above the circle of the earth. Okay, and he says that he's, you know, uh, enclosed the waters with bounds. So it's quite obvious that this represents the earth. You know, it represents the earth surrounded by a circular ocean that's, that's bounded, it's enclosed. Um, and, you know, it's upheld by pillars, and it has four corners. Um, so... My whole thing about this, my reason for reading this chapter and my reason for uh, thinking it's relevant to 
for sharing this kind of information is because, you know, the flat earth movement right now, it's in complete disarray. It's basically collapsing under the weight of itself. People are, you know, now discrediting the model based on quote unquote evidence. Um, my whole thing is, see this whole thing about this flight, you know, from Chile, you know, South America to Australia. See, you know, that's this whether it's 12 hours or 14 hours nonstop, whatever. This whole thing about this flight, see, that people get so worked up about, and then discredit the whole model based off one flight, whether it even exists or not. I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm just saying. Um, this is the problem with basing a model off of evidence, or what I call evidentialism. Because, as I've said before in my presupposition podcast, there's no such thing as objective evidence. There's no evidence that, that just speaks for itself, you know, autonomously. All evidence has to be interpreted, okay? And so this whole flight, I feel like um, people are jumping the gun when they see these kind of things that seem to conflict with this model that we have because there are so many variables that we can't determine or verify for ourselves. There's so many unknowns. And, uh, you know, whether we are actually interpreting this flight correctly or not, even if we are, you know, there's so many other variables that we don't have that it, it wouldn't necessarily discredit the flat Earth model itself, okay? Because we don't know exactly how the continents are positioned. We don't, we don't know how fast the plane's going. We don't know where it's going. We don't, I mean, you know what I mean? There's just so many, I mean, we don't know exactly how the continents are laid out, okay? And I see all these people, you know, like, I'll mention one guy, Chris Kendall, on, on a, a Hoaxbusters, from the Hoaxbusters podcast here. He, he likes to exalt himself as this logician, and, oh, he's all about logic and stuff. But he's falling into the same uh, false dilemma fallacy that all these other guys are falling into. He's saying, well, because we have this one thing that doesn't work on this flat Earth model that we have, that means the entire concept of a flat Earth is false. See what I mean? It's this false dichotomy, see? It's completely fallacious, okay? Um, just because you have things that seem to conflict, that doesn't mean the whole model is discredited. So the reason I read this is because we need to base our model off of revelation from God, okay? That's the only way we can have a sure foundation for a model because we can't rely on all this quote-unquote apparent evidence or alleged evidence that seems to conflict or whatever that we can't verify or determine for ourselves, okay? So I, I find, another thing I find interesting about the flight thing, about these so-called nonstop flights in the South, you know, that are problematic for the flat Earth model, is that, uh, you know, I see all these people bringing them up and alleging that they're real, but it's kind of like the, uh, the, the, apparent, the alleged deaths uh, from 9-11, you know, the alleged 3,000 deaths. It's kind of like that where you'd think if these deaths were actually real, 
you would have thousands upon thousands of family members coming forward and being like, hey, guys, you know, and like disqualifying the, and just quelling the naysayers and being like, hey, guys, yeah, these are real, you know, and here's the proof that I'm a family member and whatnot. You know, you'd have thousands of that. You'd have thousands of examples of that happening. You'd think, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, I think it's the exact same way with this flight. It's like if this flight is real, like people say, and it's taken every day, it's a common flight, you'd think there'd be thousands upon thousands of just random people coming forward and say, yeah, I've taken this flight, and here's the proof. But I haven't seen one example of that yet, not one, okay? So I'm not saying that I'm not using that to say that the flight's not real because I, I don't know. But I'm saying there's people that have investigated these flights and tried to find you know, nonstop flight, these alleged nonstop flights, and they don't find them. They find flights with at least one or two stops, okay, between these places. And all kinds of other weird stuff. Like I've heard people who've actually booked one of these flights and they couldn't, like, like they actually, like, you know, tried to pay for it and they, they got calls saying that their credit card wouldn't work and their credit card was perfectly fine, like it hadn't been, uh, um, you know, it hadn't been uh, shut off or anything at all. I mean, it was just it's all this stuff around these flights that you, we just can't verify or determine for ourselves, okay? So I'm saying that, you know, the only way we can rely on a model is if it's from revelation from God. We, if we base our epistemology off revelation, and the Bible is that revelation, okay? It gives us a model of the cosmos. Now, the Bible is not a cosmology book. It doesn't exactly lay out and say, you know, here's what the continents look like. Here's how the continents are laid out. Here's how, you know, the sun and the moon work. You know, it doesn't explicitly give us these details, okay? But it does give us a basic model, okay? And that basic model is the model that's being questioned in the flyer movement. It is this circular plane that's bounded by a circular or it's a plane bounded by a circular ocean. That is in the Bible. That foundational premise is in the Bible, that basic model. It's, you know, it's uh, enclosed with a firmament. It has waters above. It has an underworld beneath. This is all in the Bible, okay, this basic model that's basically under discussion within the flat earth movement and now being discredited. So I think that... Um, you know, it's quite evident to me what they're doing with the Flat Earth Movement, how they infiltrated it and co-opted it from the get-go. It's quite evident now what their purpose was for that. It's, you know, for the you know the tried-and-true guilt by association and the tried-and-true now they're discrediting it. And they're also mocking, you know, basically this, the same old target, you know, people who take the Bible literally, okay? Because... You see all the leaders of the Flat Earth Movement, which I think are all agents. You know, Eric Dubé, it's quite obvious what his game is. I mean, you know, he, he blames the conspiracy of the world and all the world's problems on Judaism. Okay, guys? Is that not obvious? What what red flag? Is that is that red flag not obvious what his purpose is for that? <laughs> you see what I mean? He's blaming, he's basically blaming the Bible for the world's problems. See, that's his purpose. See? It's a mockery. They release the truth, but they do it in such a way that it, they, they mock they mock it. They make a mockery of it. 
see. And, you know, they're also uh, um, putting people, you know, with these leaders there, directing people in all these preordained avenues that they wanted people to be directed in from the start, you know, for confusion, for division, and to prevent any kind of, you know, unified uh, revelation of this model or any kind of, um, you know, unified, you know, figuring it out, they would prevent that entirely because, you know, I find it interesting how you notice there's no division or dissension amongst the concaver model. Isn't that interesting? Notice how all the division and dissension is within the flat earth movement. You think that would tell you right there which movement the truth is in, see? You see, I mean, it's right there. It's, it has to be within the flat earth movement. And it is because that's the model that's given in the Bible. Okay? That's the model. Okay? So, like I said, I mean, it's just obvious to me what their purpose was with this. Um, so... Um, so, yeah, I mean, we can't rely on evidentialism to form any kind of epistemology or model, okay? You can only form, you can only base an epistemology that's justified on revelation and reason, which is justified true belief from that revelation, you know, or by the standard of whatever revealed standard you have, okay? From God. So, because, like I said, there's all these variables we just cannot determine or figure out for ourselves. We, we don't know the layout of the continents. There's no way we can figure it out. We don't know, you know, exactly how they're positioned on this map. You know, we don't know exactly what it looks like. We don't know exactly, we don't even know if this plane flight is real or if these flights are real. And if they are, we don't know. There's other variables we don't know and we can't know. We don't know how fast it's going. We don't know what route it's taking. Again, I mean, so even if these evidences are real or these data points are real, we don't know how to interpret them correctly, okay, within the proper framework. So what I'm saying is there might be these alleged conflicts and things to conflict, but there has to be a way, since this is the model the Bible gave us, there has to be a way to reconcile or interpret them correctly, which would reconcile them with the model. See what I mean? And we just don't have that. We don't have that way. Because we don't know these other variables that would determine that. Such a uh, correct interpretation. We don't have the framework. Like I said, we only have basic details. We only have the basic model, which is what the Bible gives us. And that's what we need to put our foundation on and put our foundation in. So, so yeah, that's my word of the day. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. All right. Bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.